you're not already turned there, please turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, and I would invite you to stand as I read for you verses 1 through 4 as we come to this final verse of this opening segment. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. Please be seated. Now, some have been commenting to me at the rather slow pace that we have begun this study of 2 Peter, about a verse a week. I suppose taking one verse at a time may well be regarded as slow, but I wish to encourage you and remind you that in these opening four verses of this little letter, we are presented with some of the most profound, some of the deepest truths of all Scripture. We could just ponder these things and discuss them for hours and hours on end. What kind of doctrines are we talking about? Well, we have the doctrines of divine election, of saving faith, of the source and scope of our sanctification, of being both divine in origin and human in its application. And by way of reminder then, we have noted that saving faith, that ability that any one of us who have professed to know Christ, saving faith, that ability to look upon the work and person of Jesus Christ as necessary, to see him as being both God and Savior, of both divine and human, we are reminded that that does not come naturally. The human mind does not and does not desire to embrace that thought. It is supernaturally received. According to first. Uh, Peter. According to Philippians 1.29, such a saving faith has been granted to us, and according to Ephesians 2.8, such a saving faith is a gift. In addition to saving faith, believers are given and provided obedience enabling grace, verse 2, and confidence bringing peace. Remember that peace is that state of mind where we know we have been made right with God because of the work of of Christ. We need not worry and hide in the shadows and think, is it enough? Because Jesus paid it all, beloved. He's, he's taken care of it. We are at peace with God, and that grace and peace is multiplied. It is added to us as we grow in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Do you want to experience grace? Do you want to know the peace of God that surpasses all understanding? Read the book. Grow in the knowledge of God. On top of all of this, we noted all things or everything necessary to live a life that pleases God has been granted to believers as well. And this is through the provision of God's power and the knowledge of Christ who called believers to himself 
by his own glory, it says, that is Jesus being exalted as God, as well as according to his own moral excellence, which is exalting his position as man. He's glorious as God, he's excellent as man. And so he has that full moral standing. Everything about these opening words have pointed us to the person have driven us to consider the work and the sovereignty, the control, the influence, and the direction of Jesus Christ in the believer's life. Believers are the recipient of gracious gifts. But, beloved, all of these gracious gifts have a point. Why does God give saving faith? Why is it that God grants us grace and peace? Why is it that we have everything necessary for life? And godliness, well, there's the goal, is it not? The goal is godliness. We might define godliness in terms that we are familiar with. It's Christ-likeness. It is what we recognize as the process of sanctification. When all is said and done with this letter, Peter's passion for his readers is that they would be inspired to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we might reflect him better. We might look like him more. We might speak of him more often. Peter is reminding us that the first step in this process is you must believe. You must have faith. There are some in this room who do not yet believe. We need then a constant flow of grace and peace that are realized through knowing Christ. We must recognize that living out the spiritual life, living a life that pleases God, is never self-driven, but it needs everything to do so from God. This brings us to the final gift Peter mentions as he introduces this letter, the gift of God's promises to be like Christ. Do you know that God has promised that you and I who have believed will be made like Christ? Promise after promise. Now, many days I wake up and I feel like I'm a million miles from the goal. But that's where Paul comes along to the Philippians and says, I'm confident. I am fully persuaded that if God began the work in you, you can rest assured. He will bring you to completion. He will bring you to the end. Beloved, the goal is to be like Christ. And my desire for us this morning then is to look to and depend upon the promises of God in our quest to be like Jesus. So then let us consider this fourth and final point of this series, the gift of God's promises to be like Christ. We read in verse 4, For by these he, and that's referencing Christ, has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you all may become partakers of the divine nature. That sounds exciting. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust, more God, less world. I would suspect that in a group like this, that if I were to ask you, how many of you desire to grow in your relationship to Christ? How many of you want to know him better and to know him more? How many of you want to, to press on in your understanding and appreciation and wonder of Christ? We would have a lot of raised hands, would we not? Do we not all, at least at some level, acknowledge that? 
For those of you who are uncertain how you might answer that question, or if you think that it would, you would be brave enough to say, no, no, I'm quite satisfied with what I know about Christ, and I need nothing further, let me just share some scripture with you according to 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 and 2. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. For those of you who are uncertain, it is enough. It is time to be saved. If you are here today, if you are, you are being called by God. You are called by Christ, by your presence today. And what is Christ calling you to do? He's saying, repent. And he's saying, believe. He's saying, it is time to be born again. If you refuse, if you neglect this call, if you put it off, believing there may be a better time in the future, if you find yourself uncertain as to the necessity of receiving Christ and seeing your life change now, then know this according to Scripture. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of, fire, of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Hebrews chapter 10. Can you trust God's word as being true? Beloved, there is more ample evidence as to the reliability and the trustworthy of scripture being true than any other ancient document in humanity's possession. And if it be true, then one thing is for certain. If this word is true, then according to Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name than the name of Jesus under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It is the day for salvation. We are here either to celebrate salvation that we've received or to call the unbelieving to faith and be saved. Do not harden your heart as did Pharaoh, which led to his destruction. But call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Nay, I say, cry out on the name of the Lord. Ask him, plead with him to give you grace and mercy and forgiveness and newness of life. Tomorrow may well be too late. The word of God, God's own words say, behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do not tarry, do not delay for the well-being of your soul is at stake. You could be the answer of the prayer of those who love you and have prayed earnestly for your salvation. You could be the joy of your spiritual leaders who will give an account of your life while under their care. Be saved by the grace of God through faith in the Son of God. Now, for those of us who know, we also need to grow in Christ. Not one of us in this room has arrived. We have not leveled out in saying that I can coast now into the kingdom. We are to be like newborn babies who long for the pure milk of the word so that by it we may what? Grow in respect to what? Our salvation. I am not content 
with what I know about my salvation. I know what I know is enough, but I want to know more. I want to probe the very depths of my salvation. I want to be like those angels who long to look into the wonder of salvation. This is Peter's desire for his readers. May it be now our desire as we consider the gift of the promises to be like Jesus. Again, look at verse 4. For by these, Christ has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Let us consider a few points here. First, I present to you the promises of God. Let's consider the promises of God. For the many things that the word of God is, if I were to ask you what is the word of God, we would come up with a lot of answers. It is a book revealing the glory of God, is it not? A glorious God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. A glorious God who saves his people by the parting of the Red Sea. A glorious God who, of course, saves one of his own out of the mouths of lion. It's a book of glory. It's a book revealing the salvation of God. It is a book that reveals the promises of God. It has been said that the Old Testament in itself is a book about promises that God has made. And the New Testament, then, is the book about God's promises kept. Throughout Scripture, we find God continually making promises, making covenants, and then what does he go and do? He hauls off and he fulfills them. And he never misses with what he says he's going to do. All that he said that he was going to do, that has already come to pass, has done so with perfection. And therefore, everything that he said is yet to come, he will fulfill with perfection, accurately and fully. Beloved, even as we worship here today, we do so, do you not know, by the promise of God. You are here today because God has kept his promises. God promised Israel that from them would come the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed, the promised one, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, as promised, where? In Genesis 3.15. Yet the promise of such a, a deliverer, such a redeemer, would not be limited, praise God, to Israel alone. But would also be pro, uh, make, he would also make a promise that would include the Gentile peoples as well. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, we read these words, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the lands of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness, the Gentiles, will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. We are here because Isaiah's prophecy has come true. And the light of Jesus Christ has shone in the lives of those of us who have come to know Jesus Christ. We are those who are walking in the light of God's promise that would shine on Gentile nations, that would point us to the person of Christ. It would be this promise of salvation that Peter preached in the very first sermon given to the church on the day of Pentecost. In Acts 20, uh, 2.39, Peter preached these words saying to Israel, 
the promise is for you and your children, the Jews, and for all who are far off. That's the Gentiles. You and I were far off. We were removed from the hope of God. We had no hope of eternal life. But God promised to bring us into the fold of faith. In other words, with the coming of Jesus the Christ, we who believe are now the recipients of the promises concerning salvation. And those are just some of the promises. But in our text, they're not just promises, are they? We can say things like, I promise you uh, to make you a peanut butter jelly sandwich. Is that a great and magnificent promise? Is that a precious and magnificent promise? It is when my wife makes me one, but... But notice, it's not just promises, it's the precious and magnificent promises. Those who are of faith, those who are empowered by grace and the peace and the knowledge of Christ, who have come from God to have everything they need in their lives to live lives of obedience to him, they have also become the recipients of the promises. Notice it's plural, the promises. And they are not just some rinky-dink superficial, full of fluff, or worse yet, mostly empty promises, Peter identifies them with two incredible adjectives, precious and magnificent. When was the last time you received a gift so wondrous that you used the word precious and magnificent? I don't know the last time I used those words to describe a promise or a gift, but here's Peter. The word precious, beloved, speaks of the great value and worth of something. And magnificent speaks of that which is not simply great, but it could be translated as exceedingly great, over-the-top greatness. It is the greatest possible. What Peter is conveying is that the gospel which includes the gift of faith, the gift of grace, the gift of peace, the knowledge and all things necessary for life and godliness, that such things are the fulfillment of God's promises. These are the most precious gifts you might ever consider. These are the most wondrous, these are the greatest, the most magnificent gifts that the human mind could ever conceive. Again, I keep coming back in my mind to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, where it says that even the angels long to look into the things of salvation. If it is that wondrous that the angels in heaven are seeking to understand and, and comprehend all the promises of the Christ that was to come and bring salvation to people like us, how much more should we try to wrap our minds around the preciousness and the magnificent magnificence of the gospel? Oh, to so view the gospel. Our hearts and our minds are so easily duped into thinking that there are more important things to consider, that there are greater things to consider, that there are things that are more delightful than the gospel. If you think there's something more delightful than the gospel to consider, you have lost your focus. There is nothing greater than a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should drive you and see nothing more delightful. May God grant us hearts and minds that delight in the promises that have been fulfilled in Christ and that Christ, not the things of this world, would be our life, our hope, our joy, our all in all. 
Beloved, according to the word of God, there is nothing more precious to us than the promises of God fulfilled in Christ. And according to the scripture, there is nothing more magnificent than the promises of God fulfilled in Christ. Again, that Peter had such things in mind is clear when we consider what he wrote in the first letter. Again, I've been alluding to it, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Peter reminds believers of something extraordinary, of how the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come, the promises uh, to you, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. These were men who longed to see the promises of God fulfilled. Isaiah longed to see the promises of God fulfilled. David longed to see the promises of God fulfilled. Read Daniel chapter 9 and see a man who longed to see the promises of God fulfilled. See Jeremiah who was weeping because he desired to see the promises of God fulfilled. And we today look back and say the greatest promise of salvation through Christ has been granted to us, the precious and magnificent promise. What are the promises that these men made? That Jesus would be born, uh, that Christ would be born in a little town of Bethlehem, just as promised according to Micah 2. That he would be born of a virgin, just as promised in Isaiah 7.14. That he came to save his people from their sins, just as was promised in Isaiah 53 and Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Stop and consider this truth with me, beloved. Ponder the wonderful blessing of this moment in which we find ourselves that such promises, the promise of faith in Christ, of grace and peace in Christ, of the knowledge of Christ, the provisions of Christ are now yours and mine. It's not simply enough to say Jesus paid it all. Jesus gave it all to him who believes on him. But Peter gives us more to consider. They're not just precious and magnificent promises. They are the granted promises, granted to us promises. Lest you think I've gotten ahead of myself, which is often the case. Let us go back to the front end of verse 4 and realize once again the divine origin and the delightful grace of this fulfilled, these fulfilled promises. The promises of God are not experienced by believers because of anything that they have done, but are, like everything else we've seen in this text, granted. They are bestowed upon us. The word granted here in verse 4 is the same word as used in verse 3, also translated granted. The promises are granted, they are freely bestowed, given by divine grace, not earned, not merited, not to be expected on our part as though, God, you owe us these things, but rather received as a most wondrous display of God's marvelous grace, the receiving of that which you and I do not deserve. Like in verse 3, granted this word written in what we call the perfect tense in the Greek, which I know that's, uh, well, that's all Greek to you, right? What does that mean? It means that we are un to understand that the promises of God are, were given in the past, but they also have a present and a future experience for us. They were given in the past, and they will 
give to us now, and they will continue to give and provide for us into the future. Now, one birthday, when I was about six, I was given, I had been given. Notice I said I had, not have been given. I had been given a bike. It happened in the past. But that bike, which by the name was, it had a name. It was called the Dill Pickle. It was a green bike. I don't know why you would name a bike that, but that's what it was called. I had been given a bike, but I do not have such a bike today, and I will never have that bike again in the future because that was something that I had, but I don't have it now. Beloved, not so with the promises of God. They were given in the past. I have them now, and I will have them always, and that is the meaning of the perfect tense. But in addition, Peter's telling us more because it's not just in the, in the perfect tense. The verb granted is in the middle voice. Now, what on earth does that mean? The middle voice speaks of that, the one who is performing the action here granted with reference to himself and for himself. It has nothing to do with anybody but the one who's doing it. In other words, no one told, no one influenced, no one said, God, you must grant these promises to these people. No, no one coerced God. We might rightly translate verse 4 this way. For by these he has, by himself and for himself, granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. The reminder here is what? This is all of God. You didn't do this. This is not of your making. You could will it to be so. You could wish it to be so. You could demand it to be so. It has nothing to do with you at all. It has to do with God. What does this do to us? It causes us to be in humble awe of him who would give us sinners such wondrous promises. And just to drive the point home, as if Peter says, don't think for a moment you're going to take credit for this. He pushes harder. Notice that verse 4 begins with the phrase, for by these. And of course, it begs the question, what are the these Peter refers to? Well, Peter is referring to the two things just mentioned in verse 3, at the end of verse 3. He's referring to the glory and the excellence of Jesus Christ. He's referring to the glory and the excellence of Jesus Christ that is conferred upon those of faith these wondrous gospel promises of new birth and of new life, of being a new creation with a new hope fulfilled in Christ, by Christ, for his glory, because of his moral excellence. Remember, his glory speaks to him as being God, his excellence, his moral excellence as man. Beloved, Jesus has granted to us the precious and magnificent promises. The to us reminds us that we must take the time this morning to personally consider, to evaluate the blessing of such promises. These can be yours if the price is right. And what is the price? The spilt blood of Jesus paid it all. And so it can be to you if you will what? Believe and have the same, same kind of faith as ours as Peter has already mentioned. 
It is the power of Christ who places such promises in our ears so that we might rightly appreciate their value and then live in light of those promises. But there's more. It's not just that God promises. It's not just that they are precious and magnificent promises. It's not just that God says, I will grant these to you if you believe. But they are purposeful promises. We have the so that statement there. Why does Christ grant believers such promises? Are these just to be factoids that we file away? Oh, look at all these cool things that I can say. I can rattle off a list of the promises of God. No, beloved, there's a purpose for the promises of God. It's not just to make you feel good. It is to make you like Christ. We read at the end of verse 4 the purpose. So that you may become what? Partakers of the divine nature. Now, what does that mean, to become a partaker of the divine nature? The verb may become partakers indicates, listen, a process and implies an ongoing growth that characterizes the true Christian life. You should be, if you've received the promises, you are in an ongoing growth program that makes you look more and more like Jesus Christ. In other words... And here's the thing that so many people want to know. I get these kinds of questions as a pastor all the time. How can I know that I'm saved? Right? How can I know? Well, if you want to know that you are saved, all you need to do is ask yourself the question, am I truly growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ? Am I becoming, what does that mean? Am I becoming increasingly obedient to what I know Christ has commanded and am I comprehending more of Christ are you obeying him more I would venture to say that there would be some in this room who have made a profession of Christ a good profession of Christ but your life may be characterized by this that you are not more obedient to Christ today than you were at some other point in your life. It's time to repent. Your desire ought to be, in light of all that God has done for you, God, by your grace, help me be increasingly obedient. Because not one in this room has made it there yet. And not one of us knows everything there is to know about Christ, so we continue to grow. Beloved, to become a partaker of the divine nature then speaks of the change that God brings about us, about in us when he saves us. I would say to you that you could make the equation that the being a partaker of the divine nature is equal to, it is akin to this process of what we call sanctification. To become a partaker of the divine nature means I am becoming more sanctified, which means I'm becoming more godly. I'm more and more Christ-like. I'm more and more set apart from the ways and the thinkings of this world. And I'm increasingly becoming that person who longs for the ways and the thoughts of Christ. Beloved, note that, that here our sanctification begins where? It doesn't begin with us. 
It will include us, but it has to start with God granting you the promise of partaking of this divine nature. This is what God does. This is what the Lord promises. This is what the Lord fulfills. As we'll come to see in verses 5 through 10, believers get to participate in this process. We get to see firsthand. We are the Petri dish. We are the experiment. We get to see the growth before our own eyes. We will participate in this process of being more and more godly. But for now, before Peter even mentions that, he doesn't get ahead of himself. And he says, just stop and know this truth. If you are going to be holy, it will start with me. You will not find it in the world. You will not find it. There may be things in this world that could help you if there are any, but it must begin with Christ and his word. Don't put anything else in front of that equation. It all starts with Christ. This is why Peter describes salvation in 1 Peter, his first letter, 1 Peter 1.3, this way, saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has what? Has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's caused us to be born again. Can you get your head wrapped around that? It's not you, it's him. Begin with that truth. Meditate on that truth and then begin to expand out as Peter will do for us in the subsequent verses. As you consider this, notice how this idea of him causing us to be born again links up with what we've read here in our second Peter text. Clearly, Peter speaks of how the Lord does a work in the heart of the believer, a work that transforms him. What is involved in this transformational work? Well, let me just give you a few things here. Notice that according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says that God opened spiritually blind eyes to behold the very glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In Ephesians 4.18, we read that it is God who enlightens once darkened minds. In Ezekiel 36.26, it is God who removes our hard hearts and makes them soft and spiritually receptive. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, it is God who enlivens our once spiritually dead souls, making them alive in Christ. To put this in the words of 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it is God who makes us what? New creatures in Christ. Behold, the old things, they're gone. Get rid of them. New things have come. Live in the new things. Delight in the new things. According to 1 Corinthians 6.19, it is God who makes believers into a temple, a dwelling place for his spirit. And according to Colossians 1.27, believers now have Christ in us, the hope of glory. And believers have the promise of Romans 8.29, that we are being conformed into the image of his son. Those are just a few promises. Are there more? Are there more? Will you consider them? 
Will you list them when Peter says the great and, or the precious and magnificent promises? He doesn't delineate all of them, but why does, he, why does he not do that? Because the Spirit of God wants you to start thinking about the promises of God. All of these ideas are encapsulated in what it means, beloved, to be a partaker of the divine nature. What does it mean? In short, it is Christ transforming us to be like him. My elder brother is making me like him. My God is transforming my life. Again, this is all the Lord's doing. Peter, in these first four verses, has not directly involved believers in the process yet. He will, in the later verses, for the development of this new life, in the believer comes with the ability and the expectation of continued communion with Christ as well as continued obedience with Christ. If you are in Christ, you will commune with him, you will obey him. And both of those, we get to play a part in that sanctification, or as put it, Peter puts it here, we become partakers of the divine nature. But there's one more thing, one more thing to consider. I call it the promise of the promises. You can have all the promises, but there's another promise built into this promise. As Peter closes verse 4, he gives a, short of, a, a, a sort of promise that flows out of the purpose of the promise. Why are we to consider and ponder and, and marvel and delight and know the promises of God that enable us to become partakers of the divine nature, that is, to become more and more like Christ? Beloved, for as we become more and more like Jesus, as we spend more time knowing what Jesus likes, as we start seeing the holiness of Christ and seeing that applied in our lives, does it not stand to reason that believers would be those who would then be described as the end of this verse. We are those having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Let me do it this way. We are becoming partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. One is a very positive statement, is it not? The other is a negative statement. Positively, sanctification is becoming a partaker of the divine nature. We're becoming more like Jesus. Sanctification, negatively put, is the escaping of the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, the action having escaped, that's in a, a tense in the Greek called the aorist tense. It describes a once and for all action. Now, unlike the promises that happened in the past and we experience them in the present and they will all always be into the future, the escaping for the believer of the corruption in the world that is in that by lust, that's once and done. You'll never be bound to that again. It does not have an impact on the eternal, eternality of your soul. When believers become partakers of the divine nature, they simultaneously, when you have been caused to be born again, when you have been given of the Spirit, made a new creature, you simultaneously escape the corruption, the soul-damning influence of the world. Immediately, we are to recall our past life, our past way of thinking and of behaving, and then recognize that by God's grace, we're delivered from it. It has no power over us anymore. 
I was a corrupt being before Christ. But Christ has made me new. That has no bearing on my eternal destiny now because it has nothing to do with me. It's Christ and Christ alone. The verb having escaped paints the picture of a successful flight from danger. It is the the animal. I love watching animal documentaries, and it is the antelope that's being chased by the cheetah. And you're like, there's no way the antelope is going to escape. But somehow the antelope escapes, and you're like, I'm so happy for the little antelope. That's the idea. You have escaped the danger. Now, of course, that implies effort on the part of the believer, does it not? Peter will make note of this in the next verses, but here it's stated that you escaped not first and foremost because of yourself, but because of Christ. He is your escape. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, a fortress. The righteous run into it and are safe. Beloved, when a person is born again, he turns his back on the evil of his old life. As believers, we are now to take note of how God has changed us. We are no longer slaves of sin. We are no longer slaves of unrighteousness. Rather, we are slaves still, but to something wondrous, the righteousness of God, which is what? Christ In Romans chapter 6, verses 17 through 18, the Apostle Paul writes, But thanks be to God. Notice how he starts. Let's just be a thankful people. Can we just get an an amen on this, right? right? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, that was your master, that's what drove you. You were on your way to eternal damnation. But thank your God, you became what? Obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you did not haul off and start living for yourself because that would mean you weren't freed from sin. But you became slaves of righteousness. You became those who were obedient to a new master and a new vision of what it means to be human. The righteousness of Christ. This is what it means to become a partaker of the divine nature. It is not that we become God, but rather that God is transforming us from within to be more and more like Christ and just When will this process be complete? Oh, I wish it were today. Is there a terminus date for the finishment, the the finish, the fulfillment of this time? And yes, beloved, there is a date, there is a day when this will be complete, when we will see our Lord Jesus Christ face to face. The moment you see Christ, this is all taken care of. We read this in 1 John 
chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And in this present moment, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We don't see that full picture. This is what we know. We know that when Jesus appears, what will happen? We will be like him. For we will see him just as he is. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. I'm tired of the the vestiges of this sinful flesh getting in the way of the process of sanctification. But the promise is this will not always be. John goes on to make an interesting comment uh, on the heels of this that relates to our second Peter text. In verse 3, he says, And everyone who has this hope that you're looking for the coming of Christ to get rid of the rest of this sinful flesh. What does he do to himself right now? He purifies himself. It has a purifying effect when you say, Lord, I know you're coming to make this promise completely fulfilled. But as you look to that promise and say, even so, Lord Jesus, come, you're making yourself, you're participating in seeing yourself partake more of that divine nature. You purify yourself just as he is pure. All who are looking to the appearing of Christ and living in light of his appearing are those who purify themselves just as Christ is pure. What does this all mean? By way of application, the best way to avoid succumbing to evil. Isn't this a great thing? The best way to avoid succumbing to evil. Anybody have a problem with that? You ever have a problem with evil This kind of and, and sin is crouching at your door and its desires for you and you run out the door and it tackles you? I'm sick of this. How do I avoid succumbing to evil, particularly the evil that still looks in our hearts? Beloved, here we read, it is to fix your hope on the return of Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, our text, Peter tells us that those who are the partakers of the divine nature... In the words of John, seeking to purify themselves, these are those who have, it says, escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The word corruption speaks of that which is in the process of decay. It is the maggot and fly infested piece of rotting meat that smells when you pass by. The world and all it produces is like that rotting corpse foul-smelling, vile in its appearance, and utterly useless for anything. The picture Peter paints for us is that of what is deteriorating and is in the process of ruin. The word corruption stands in opposition to something we just talked about. You either are under the corrupting influence of the world or you are a partaker of the divine nature. You choose. The glorious, wondrous holiness of Christ or the putrefied, maggot-infested, foul-smelling, useless vestiges of your flesh. Beloved, 
sometimes we like to complicate things. Let's just make it this simple. You either are becoming more like Christ or you are decaying and there's no middle ground. You choose this day, will I decay or will I become more like Christ? Either you are being delivered and transformed by Christ into his image, or you are dissolving into the moral filth and pollution of the world without God. Notice that this corruption is not found in Christ. Everything up to this point has been Christ and about Christ. It's not about Christ. It's not about the word of God. It's not about what's true in the people of God. This corruption is not found in any other place but the world the realm of human life and activity that's alienated from God, separate from his word. The corruption that is in the world is a degenerative power that permeates everything. It permeates all, every aspect of unredeemed life and exercises a tyranny which no human effort knows effective escape. Notice that the source of this corrupting influence is by lust or in connection with lust. The word lust here speaks of evil, godless passions of the human heart. It is what Jesus spoke to us about in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, when he said, For from within, out of the heart, out of the lust of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Not one of us in this room can exempt ourselves from that list. And Jesus says in verse 23, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And then it just permeates all of the world's system. And it's all that you see, and we see it coming through in the decadence of our culture. Living under the sway of the evil passions of the human heart inevitably leads to one thing only, the moral deterioration, the moral corruption and ruin of souls. All of this reminds us that there are only two options available to us this day. You either are regenerate or unregenerate. You are either born again or you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Either your eyes are fixed upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, or your eyes are fixed on yourself and leads to death. Being born again, becoming a partaker of the divine nature allows us to participate with and enjoy all of God. Being unregenerate means our moral powers are subject to this slow decay and death, which is the wages of sin. 
The promises of God, the promises of the gospel provide deliverance from that destruction. You need not be in that place today. So let me ask you again, given only those two choices, can you safely say today that you are regenerate in Christ, that you are born again in Christ, or are you still weighed down in the death of your sin? The promises of Christ are to grant to you this day faith and grace and peace and knowledge and provision for godliness. And I ask you, have you trusted in the promises of Christ? Let me close by reminding you that there are still yet promises for us that remain in the future. Peter uses the same word for promise in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 where we read this, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, implying that righteousness doesn't dwell in this world right now. Since we are looking for his promise to come, we are asked back up in 2 Peter 3.11, what sort of people ought you to be in what? in holy conduct and godliness. How do I get there, Peter? How do I be this person of holy conduct and character? First Peter chapter, second Peter chapter two, I can read it. Second Peter chapter one, verse four. Stand on the promises of God. Verse 14, we are to be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless. Not diligent to be found in yourself, but in him. Beginning next week, we will see, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1, what a growing Christian life, what a partaker in the divine nature looks like. Again, it all begins upon our faith and knowledge of Christ. And with this knowledge of the incredible blessings of God in our lives, we are enabled to grow in the godliness that will be what Peter calls us to do later in this book. This is ultimately the point Peter's making in these verses, as well as later. In Christ, we have everything we need to live a life that pleases God, to believe, faith to believe, grace and peace to help us, every provision for life, promises for us to embrace. May we be those who so stand upon the promises of God as found in the gospel. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to consider these wondrous truths of the promises of your word. May we be a people who long to understand the promises, the promises already made and kept, and the promises that have been made that we are looking forward to. We know it all begins with faith. And so, Father, for those who know you, I know part of our prayer would be, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. And, Lord, there are some who have yet to bow the knee to Christ, and I pray this day will be the day that you open their eyes to behold the truth of Jesus as Lord and Savior. May they not rest until they settle the question they were to die tonight and stand before you, God, and you were to ask them, why should I let you into my heaven? That they would know the answer. 
They would say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest fruit, but wholly trust in Jesus. Father God, I pray that you will do your work in making us to be these wondrous partakers of the divine nature. And that we will see that grow in this congregation. For your glory and that which would, in, would invite others to see what God does to those he has caused to be born again through the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. So we ask this in his name.